ever noticed how the best movies, the best TV shows, and uh, the best books, they all, they all kind of seem to do the same thing in the fact that they, they keep us on the edge of our seats, um, regardless of whether it's a blockbuster movie or, you know, binge-worthy TV show or New York Times bestselling book, they all basically operate from the same framework. They draw us in with the plot. And once they draw us in with the plot, they charm us with the characters because we're attracted to some, we're repelled by others, we're cheering for some, we're rooting against others. And uh, they bewitch us with suspense and intrigue until we're left with bated breath, uh, eagerly awaiting to see what happens next. So we read the book and we can't wait to see what happens next. We watch the TV show, we watch the movie, and we can't you know, wait to see what happens next because we want to know what we don't know. We want to know what we can't no, uh, we've never read this book before. We've never watched this TV series before. We've never watched this movie before. We wanna know what happens next, but we don't know what happens next because we're not the author of the book. We're not the TV director. We're not the producer. Uh, those folks know the full extent from, of the plot from the very beginning. Uh, an author, uh, they're already well acquainted with all the twists and turns of the book because they wrote the book. Uh, they know how it's gonna all end in the end. They know how it's gonna resolve because they wrote the book. You see, our knowledge is limited. When you're reading a book, watching a TV show, watching you know, a movie, uh, our, our knowledge is limited. And, and that's why we have the capacity to be entertained, to be excited, to be shocked, to be surprised. Uh, to be caught off guard and to be disappointed by whatever it is that we're reading or watching because we have limited knowledge. But an author, let's say an author, uh, they don't have that uh, luxury. They don't have that capacity because they know the story from beginning to end. Uh, he or she uh, who wrote the book, uh, they know all the ins and outs. They know all the ups and downs. They know all the surprises. Uh, they know all the, you know, the plot twists because they are the author of the story. And it's their knowledge, which is different than ours. It's their knowledge, which makes it impossible for them to be shocked, to be surprised, uh, or to be caught off guard. It's not like an author can open his or her book and get to page 154 and be like, oh my gosh, I never saw that coming. Oh, I, I can't believe this. No, they would never do that because they've already written the book. It's impossible for them to learn anything new about the characters of the story because they are the creator of the characters in the story. It's impossible for the author or the director or the producer to be shocked or to be disappointed or to be surprised by what happens because they know from the very beginning what's going to happen all the way until the very end. In other words, our knowledge shapes how we experience reality. Uh, you remember the first time you read that great book or the first time you watched that TV show or the first time you watched that movie and the whole time that you were reading the book or watching the show or the movie, you just couldn't wait to see what happened next. Uh, a few weeks ago, Shepard and Grayson, they came to Allison and myself and they said, hey, we want you to watch this show with us. It's so good, it's so good, it's so good. And I said, what's the show? And they said, it's Outer Banks. And I said, well, okay, maybe. And I kind of researched it and I was like, it's a show about teenagers and you know, a bunch of high schoolers. And I'm like, I did 90210 when I was in school. I feel like I'm a little bit older, uh, you know, too sophisticated maybe for you know, a show kind of like that. And if my 13 year old, my 10 year old thinks it's great, then surely to goodness, this is not that good. But they said, would you watch one with us? Would you watch one? And so we watched one and then we watched two and then we watched four and then we watched eight and then we watched 12. And then we were like at the end, you know, of all the, the episodes that have aired and it's like, oh my gosh, we're at the end. And, and then I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, oh, I, I gotta know what happens next. This is crazy. And, and you remember the first time you watched that show or you watched the movie and you, you read the book and it was like that. You didn't know how it was gonna end. So you just had to keep on watching. You were surprised, you were shocked at what happened. It was a twist. It was something unexpected. Your knowledge or your lack of knowledge, it shaped how you experienced, how you interpreted, how you reacted to the reality that was in front of you at the time. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But today, uh, we're kicking off a brand new series, and it's all about God. This series is all about God, uh, and, and this is perhaps the most important thing that we could be talking about, uh, because I agree with what someone told me years ago. Someone told me years ago, they said, Trevor, um, what you think about God, who he is, how he acts, what he can do, and what he can't do, that's the most important thing about you. 
how you think about God, what you believe to be true about God, what you believe about who God is and what God is like and what God can do and what God can't do. I agree, it is the most important thing about you. It is the most important thing about me because it shapes our attitude, our beliefs, our ideas about God, what we believe to be true about God, what we believe to be false about God. It shapes our attitude, it shapes our emotions, it shapes our responses, and it shapes our personal plans in unimaginable ways that sometimes we're not even aware of how much influence our ideas and beliefs about God, how much relevance it has in every single day of your life and every single day of my life. And then, you know, as I look around and as I listen to people talk and, and watch people post things, it, it seems to be like there's a lot of adults walking around and even a lot of adults who are active in a local church, but there, there are a lot of adults who are walking around with a very detrimental idea uh, concerning God. Uh, they've got different thoughts about God that are not true about God. They've got different opinions about God that are not true about God. And, and so these things that they believe to be true about God that aren't true about God, they've picked up somewhere along the way from childhood. Maybe, you know, a Sunday school lesson got miscommunicated. Maybe they misunderstood it. Maybe they picked up an idea about God from a movie or from a song or from culture or from a friend or a family member or whatever it is. There's just a lot of people, and maybe even you, and, and you're not even aware of it. You're walking around, and you've got some ideas about God. You've got some beliefs about God, things that you believe to be true about God that aren't true about God. And, and what you don't understand is that that's consequential, and that's a serious thing. Because the, the idea is that no one rises above their ideas and beliefs about God, uh, especially when we believe a lie to be truth concerning God. Whenever we believe something to be true about God that's not true about God, we'll never rise above that. It will affect our lives in ways that we can't possibly even imagine. Uh, if you believe something to be true about God that isn't true about God, I promise you, I promise me, it will undermine our faith. It will undermine our joy. It will undermine our peace. It will undermine our ability to love the way that we're supposed to love, to forgive the way that we're supposed to forgive, to be healthy, to be whole, to be patient, to be loving, to be kind, to be the things that God has called us to be. If we believe things to be true about God that aren't true about God, it will undermine the very practice of our faith. And so that's why we're gonna spend this series over the next few weeks talking about who God is and what God's like and what God can do. But specifically in this series, we're gonna spend our time talking about what God can't do because that's just as important as knowing what God can do. Now, many of us who grew up in church or around church or around Christians, uh, there's, been, there's been some point in your life and my life, I guarantee you that someone looked at you and said, hey, God can do anything. God can do anything. There's nothing that God can't do. There's nothing that God can't do. God can do anything. And, and it was probably when you were going through a very difficult situation uh, and someone wanted to encourage you and someone wanted to deposit faith in you. So they looked at you and with all the best intentions that they could muster, they said, hey, listen, have faith, be hopeful because God can do anything. There's nothing that God can't do. And we were told that in order to highlight the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty and the worthiness of God. And I guarantee you the person who said that to you, and chances are, we all have said this to someone since then. You found a, you know, a friend or you know, a family member in crisis and, and you really wanted to help encourage them. And so you told them, hey, listen, keep your head up. You know, don't stop praying, don't stop asking God because God can do anything. There's nothing that God can't do. And, and we meant it, you know, for the same reasons that someone else told us once upon a time. We said it in order to grow someone's faith. We said it to strengthen someone's hope. We did it with the best intentions in mind. But here's the thing, as good as it sounds to say that God can do anything, that there's nothing that God can't do, as good as that may sound to us, as true as it may sound to us, the reality is it's just not true. God can't do anything. There are some things that God can't do, and that's not bad news. Matter of fact, it's actually good news. It's really good news because God's greatness isn't confined to what he can do. Now, God's greatness is connected to what God can do, but God's greatness also extends to what he can't do. So God is great because of what God can do, 
but God is also equally great because of what God can't do. Now within the church, we, we have been trained and, and we have a tendency to think in terms of what God can do. Uh, that's what we praise him for. That's what we're grateful for. That's what we like to think about. We like to think about all the things that God can do. And when we think about all the things that God can do, it just makes God seem, you know, awesome and powerful and, and all the things. But it's good for us also to stop and to think and to consider the things that God can't do. And that's the foundational you know, idea behind this series. It's kind of the backbone that God is great because of what he can do. And God is also great because of what he can't do. So with that in mind, we're just gonna jump in. And this is what we're gonna talk about today. God can't learn. Uh, let's all just say that out loud because I want us to hear ourselves say this for a couple of different reasons, but let's say it together. Ready, go. God can't learn. God can't learn. Now, if I had used your name, and I said, Bill can't learn, or Jill can't learn, or Bobby can't learn. And if I said that about you, you would receive that as an insult, as you should. If you're a parent of a kid who's in school and you got a letter from a teacher or a text from a teacher or an email from a teacher, and they said, hey, I just wanna tell you that your son or daughter and calls them by name and the teacher says, they can't learn. Let me tell you what you're not gonna respond with. You're not gonna respond with indifference. You're, you're gonna be ticked. You're gonna be insulted. You're gonna be offended. Many of you would pick up the phone and you would be demanding an explanation. Some of you, I know who you are. You would get in your car and you would drive to the school and if you can't find them at the school, you've done your research, you know where they live and you're gonna pull in their driveway and you're gonna say, I want you to tell me where you get the audacity to tell me that my kid can't learn. So if I said this about you, or if I heard someone say this about me, or someone said this about our children, we would not receive it as a compliment. We would not see it as a good thing. But when we talk about the fact that God can't learn, it's not an insult. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a great thing. It's actually really good news for you and really good news for me. And that's what I want us to understand in our time together as we talk about the fact that God can't learn. God is not learning anything new in this present moment. God is not discovering any new information about the world or about you in this present moment. Uh, here's what I want you to do before we jump into the text. And, and I don't ask you to do this very often, but I know you're an above average crowd. I want you to imagine something with me. Now I know some of you, you think you're too cool, for, too cool for school, but I just want you to just track with me for just a moment. I want you to imagine a barrel. And in this barrel, there's water. And when it comes to this barrel that has water in it, we are told that this barrel with water in it, that it cannot hold a single drop of additional water. That this barrel cannot receive one more additional drop of water. Now, if that's what we were told, I think that most of us would probably use our skills of logic and we would you know, think about that for a moment and we would assume that the reason that the barrel cannot receive another drop of water is that the barrel must be full and that the barrel is so full, it cannot receive another single drop of water. So we would conclude that this barrel has reached the end of its limitations. It's limited to hold a certain amount of water and since it can't receive another drop of water, it has reached the extent of its limitations. I think that's what most of us would conclude, right? All right, so you got that barrel and it's got water in it and someone says it cannot receive an additional drop of water. And so we're assuming, okay, it's limited. It can't receive any more water, but I want you to put that barrel aside for a moment and I want you to imagine another barrel and this barrel, this barrel is so large, it's really difficult to imagine just how large this barrel is. But this barrel contains every drop of water on the planet. And not only on the planet, wherever there might be water in the universe or galaxies far removed from us, every single drop of water in the cosmos is in this barrel. And then someone says, hey, this barrel cannot receive another drop of water. 
Now, knowing what we know, because knowledge shapes how we experience reality, interpret reality, respond to reality, knowing what we know that this barrel already contains all the water in the cosmos, we're not going to assume that it cannot receive another drop of water because of its own limitation. But the reason it can't receive another drop of water is because there isn't any additional water to add, not a single drop, because all the water that exists is inside the barrel. So there is no more water to put in it. This is a picture of what it means to say that God can't learn. When we say that God can't learn, it's not indicative of the fact that God has some sort of limitation, that God can't learn something new, that God can't receive additional information. It just simply points to the fact that God already possesses everything there is to know, that there's not a single drop of data, information, not a truth, not a tidbit, not a fact, not an insight, not a sliver of knowledge that God does not already contain. So when we say that God can't learn, it is not about God's limitation. It's about the fact that God already possesses all that there possibly is to know as far as knowledge is concerned. Uh, to say it another way, God can't learn anything because God already knows everything. Uh, you find this all throughout the scriptures, and this is a central part of uh, theology about God that is accurate and biblical and truthful. And, and this truth to say that God can't learn anything because God already knows everything, it, it seems lofty, and it is, and, and it's so abstract because it's hard for us to relate to it. Uh, we're tempted to think that there's no personal relevance and no personal importance in this truth for you and for me. But the actuality is this truth is so profoundly relevant for your life and for my life and for every single person in the world. This fact that God, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't lack any knowledge whatsoever. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows every single thing that there is to know. This is incredibly relevant for your life and for my life. And it brings me to a song a song that I want us to, to look at line by line today. And, and it's found in the Psalms because the book of Psalms is really just a book of songs. And, and this particular Psalm was written by King David. And, and David has apparently for some time, I, I would like to imagine uh, that David's been thinking about this for some extended piece of time because this is pretty deep thinking that David engages in. And sometimes when we think about things on a deeper level, you know, we think about it and then we kind of step away from it for a while and we come back to it and maybe we jot down some notes and we do some additional thinking. And, and I think that David's just been teasing out this thought. He's been letting it marinate. He's been letting it cook. And he's been contemplating the knowledge of God. He's been contemplating the fact that God can't learn anything because God already knows everything. And he's contemplating the fact that God, the fact that God can't learn anything isn't about God's limitation. It's just because God knows everything there is to know. He already possesses it. So he begins to write a song about it. And, and this, is, this is where we pick it up. David says, oh Lord, oh Lord, you have examined my heart and you know everything about me. God, you have scrutinized my life. God, you have investigated my life. Oh God, you have examined my heart and know everything, everything about me. Now, think about this for a moment. What if this is not only true for David, but what if it's true for you? And what if it's true for me? And what if it's true for all of us? That God has examined our hearts, that God has scrutinized our life. God has investigated our existence from the top to the bottom that God has covered everything about you and everything about me. And you along with David and I along with David could say, God, you know everything about me. Now think about that. God knows everything about you. Now my follow-up question is, how does that make you feel? Because for some of us, the thought that God knows everything about me, I'm talking everything, that God knows things about me that no one else knows about me. And God knows things about you that nobody else knows about you. How does that make 
you feel. For some of us, it just automatically makes us feel ashamed because we go to the worst moments, we go to the darkest moments, we go to those seasons when we made terrible choices, we revisit that season of temptation and sin, when we disappointed ourselves, we disappointed other people, we disappointed God, you know, and, and we're just struck with these feelings of shame and guilt. When we think about the fact that God knows everything about us, does it, does it bring about feelings of embarrassment? Like, oh gosh, I... I I wish he didn't know that. I, I wish, I just wish that that wasn't something he knew about me. Does it make you feel regretful because you begin to rehearse those decisions? You begin to rehearse those seasons of life and it's just like you just go back and you revisit it and you rehash it and it's like, I just, I just regret that so bad. I, I wish I could go back and change that. And then here comes the shame and here comes the guilt. Does it make you stressful? Because when you think about those moments and you think about the seasons and you think about the worst things you've done and the worst things you've said and the worst things that you've thought, does it stress you because then you begin to question about, well, how good can my relationship with God actually be? And how does God actually feel about me if he knows all of this stuff about me? And to consider the fact that God knows everything about me, does, does it make me feel closer to God or does it make me kind of want to step back from God? Does it make me be a little fearful does it rob me of my confidence with God? Does it rob me of my confidence in God's love and God's goodness and God's faithfulness? And, and I'm just kind of walking on eggshells because I'm not quite sure where I stand with God because I know that God knows everything about me. Does the idea of that make you feel closer to God or does it make you feel distant from God? Does it make you feel loved by God or perhaps just a little less loved by God? For David, when he thought about the fact that God had examined and scrutinized and investigated his life and that God knew everything about him, when David thought of that idea and David thought of that fact and that truth, he didn't find it terrifying. He actually found it reassuring. And for David, when he thought about the fact that God knew everything about him, it wasn't a source of grief and it didn't create shame and it didn't create guilt and it didn't cause him to just walk in condemnation, but David actually found comfort in the idea that God knows everything about him. He didn't find it paralyzing. He found it freeing. It didn't make him feel further away from God. It actually made him feel closer to God. It didn't make him feel less loved by God. It made him feel more loved by God. He says, God, you've examined, scrutinized, and investigated everything about me. You know everything about me. And he just keeps on going. He says, you know, there's the word again. He's just gonna keep on using this. You know, you have perfect knowledge. You have intimate knowledge. You know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. And, and he uses a poetic device, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, a device of rhetoric where, you know, he gives two contrasting parts in order to represent a whole. And he says, God, you know me when I get up in the morning and you know when I lay down. Two parts to represent a whole. God, you know me when I'm in bed, you know me when I'm awake and you know my life at every moment in between. And that's what he's communicating, that God's knowledge of him is comprehensive. That God knows me when I'm near and God knows me when I'm far away. These two parts represent the whole of David's life. Now, this knowledge is not altogether different than what any private investigator could get by watching you or me for just a few days because a private investigator could sit outside our house and see the light come on in the morning and say, okay, the light's on at 622 and, and, and just stays parked, you know, across the road from your house and waits and you get back home around seven, okay, seven o'clock, back home. And then the lights are off at 1135, back in bed. Now, a private investigator could, you know, come to some of that knowledge, but David says, it's just not about knowing when I wake up and when I lay down, but God, you know everything in between. And then to take it a step further, you know, you know my thoughts. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. God, you know everything about me. You even know my thoughts. Now, just think about that one for a moment. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine if I'd sent out a text yesterday or an email or a phone call to you yesterday and said, listen, 
Creekers, you're going to be so excited because we've obtained some brand new technology and we have implemented it for this Sunday at church. We are so proud to announce that this Sunday when you come to church, we have this new software that when you come in the door Sunday and you walk into the auditorium, everything you thought this week is going to be shown on the big screen. You know what's going to happen? No one's coming to church, including the staff. It's going to be an empty building. Can you imagine anything more paralyzing, more horrifying, embarrassing, shameful? Can you imagine anything that would be quite like having every thought exposed? I mean, that would be terrifying. And you know what would be terrifying? Because we know people. And the reason that we know people is because we know ourselves. And we're afraid that if we showed up on Sunday and all of our thoughts were up there on the big screen, we would be fearful of how people would feel about us, knowing some of the things that we thought this week. We would be fearful about how people would feel about us in the knowledge of knowing everything we have thought over the course of that week. We'd be terrified that the church would say, hey, you can't come to church here anymore. My God, who would have thought? Sister Jane, Lord help. I would have never guessed. Would you have ever guessed? No, I would have never guessed. I mean, it would just be terrible because we, we, would, we would think some people would unlove us. Some people would lose respect for us. Some people would pull away from us and there may not be a place for us anymore if everybody knew everything that I thought over the course of the week. David said, God, you have investigated me. You know everything about me. You even know my thoughts. But it didn't cause David fear. It didn't cause David shame. It didn't cause David embarrassment. It didn't cause him to recoil at the thought of that. He said, God, you know every single thought that I have had run across my mind for my entire life, for my entire existence. And so he just keeps on going to show us just how much God knows. He says, you see me when I travel and when I rest at home. And again, two contrasting parts to represent a whole. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. When I'm near, you know me. When I'm far away, you know me. You know, there it is again, you know everything I do. There's no boundary to God's knowledge. You know me when I'm at home. You know me on vacation. You know me on the business trip. You know me when I go here. You know me when I go there. God, there's no boundary to what you know and to what you can see and to what you can hear. God, you know everything I do. And he just keeps rolling. He says, you know, you know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. Now, it's one thing to think it and to know that he knows what we're thinking. But David says, God, you even, you know every single word that I speak, all the things, every single word that comes out of my mouth, God, you know about it. You hear it. He says, you go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing." on my head. Now, this is a big deal because David said, God, you've scrutinized me. You've investigated me. You know me when I lay down. You know me when I'm up. You know everything I do. You know everything I say. You know every thought in my mind, but yet you go before me and you go behind me and you place your hand of blessing on my head. And this is David's way of saying, God, even though you know everything about me, you have not withdrawn your protection in my life. You have not withdrawn your hand of blessing in my life. God, even though you've heard everything I've ever said, you know everything I've ever thought, you've seen anything and everything that I've ever done. God, even in light of that, you have never stopped going before me. You've never stopped being behind me and around me. And you've never taken your hand of blessing away from me. This is David's way of saying, God, even though you know what you know about me, you refuse to change the way that you treat me. 
God, even though you know what you know about me, you have refused to allow what you know about me to change the way that you treat me. You go before me, you go behind me, you're around me. You offer your protection to me and your hand of blessing is on my head. You have refused to pull away your blessing from my life, even though you know what you know about me. And as David thinks about this, David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too great for me to understand. When I contemplate what grace and what mercy and what love and what patience and forbearance, this is just too much for me to understand because again, David's human and he knows what us humans are like. When we know things about each other that we didn't know, about each other, when we discover something about one another that we didn't know, when we see something that we've never seen and we see somebody do something or we hear somebody say something, oftentimes it changes things. It can change the way that we feel about them. Sometimes it can change the way that we treat them. It changes the level of respect. It can change the dynamic of the friendship or the relationship. Listen, I promise you, I promise you, if you knew everything about the person sitting beside of you today, it would change how you feel. Can we just really be honest? Might as well. If you knew everything about me, it changed the way you felt about me. Let's be honest. If I knew everything about you, it'd probably change the way I feel about you. I'm human and you're human. If you knew everything that your friends thought about you but never said to you, <laughs> they may not be your friend anymore. If you knew everything that your friends said about you when you weren't around, it would probably change the dynamic of things. It would probably change the way you feel. It would probably change the way you treat them. You'd be angry, you'd be disappointed, you'd be appalled, you'd be surprised, you'd be hurt, you'd be shocked. But yet David says, God, you know everything about me. You know everything about me. And you have refused to allow it to change how you treat me. He says, to think about this, it's knowledge that's too wonderful for me. It's too great for me to understand because this is not something that's inhuman. It's not something that is of human origin. It, it's divine, it's, it's glorious. It's almost beyond comprehension. And then David, he, he just keeps on going on this tangent. And he says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. You go before me, you're behind me, you're beside of me. You refuse to pull your presence away from me even in light of what you know. Now, let's face it, sometimes you knowing what you know about you, it makes it feel like God is distant. It makes it feel like God is far away. But David says, that's not the case. <laughs> There's no place that I can go to get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. Two contrasting parts, to represent the whole. God, you're always there. At every moment of my life, you're always there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. In other words, at the highest place and the lowest place, at the moment that the sun rises and the moment that the sun sets, God, you're always with me. You refuse to step away from me. Even though you know what you know about me, you refuse to step away from me. And God, even in my rebellion and even in my sin, when I walk away from you and I run away from you, you chase after me. But not only do you chase after me, you're running beside of me. And not only you're running beside of me, but where I'm running to, you're already there. And you refuse to leave me. You refuse to forsake me, even in light of what you know about me. You refuse to leave me alone. You refuse to allow me to fend for myself, even though you know what you know 
about me. And this is David's way of saying there's no place, no thing, no circumstance, no pain, no struggle, no sin, no anything that can ever separate you from the presence of God. His presence is unavoidable. It's all-encompassing. It's inescapable. He says, I could ask. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. He he said, I could ask for light to become darkness, but even in the darkness, I can't hide from you because God, you see in through the darkness as easy as you see into the light. Darkness does not shroud you from knowledge. What's done in the dark is not hidden from you. You see what's done in the light. You see what's done in the darkness. There's nothing that obstructs your knowledge. There's nothing that obstructs your vision, your hearing. God, you see it all. You know it all. You understand it all. You see in the dark places as well as the lit places. Because God, you can't learn anything because you already know everything. What David says next seems like it's out of place. It almost seems like he's changing the subject, but he's not. Because actually it takes us to the best part of what David says, in my opinion. He says, God, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. He said, like someone who's weaving together a quilt or a blanket. He said, God, you knit me. You created me. God, you are the creator of my life. You are the designer of my life. You're the architect of my life. You knitted me even in my mother's womb. And then he says, God, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. And this is a thousand years before Jesus ever stepped on the planet. This is 3,000 plus years ago. This is before DNA. This is before anybody understood how the organ systems and the respiratory system and the digestion system and the nervous system and how the brain worked and the heart worked and the lung worked and white blood cells and, you know, red blood cells and all all the things. But David could look in the mirror and see his reflection and know that there was something different about him when compared to the animals or when compared to the plants or the trees of the forest. He said, God, I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. I'm wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. And so he says that to open the door to this part. He says, you watched me. Another way of saying you knew me, you watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. For all the married people who are parents in the building, yes, that means what you think it means. He says, God, you were watching. You were watching when that one sperm won the race and met the egg. You watched fertilization take place. God, you watched the implantation take place into that womb. You watched it all. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, and I was woven together in the dark of the womb. When I was in the uterus of my mother, God, you watched me. You saw me. You heard me. You knew me. You saw me before I was born. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. And just not every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And and this is David saying, God, before I was ever born, before I was ever on the outside of my mother's womb and took my first breath and made my first cry, you saw every day of my life. You saw every moment of my life. You heard every word that I would speak over the course of my life. You knew every thought that I would ever think over the course of my life. You saw every single moment. You saw me at my best. You saw me at my worst. You saw me at all the points in between. You saw all my struggles. You saw all my temptations. You saw all my sin, all my failure, all my shortcomings. You saw it all before I ever breathed my first breath. 
It was recorded in your book. And before I lived my life, you had already read the book of my life. You had already watched the movie of my life. You had already watched the TV show of my life. You knew the ins and outs, the plot twists, the surprises. You knew how it was all gonna resolve in the end. You saw it all, you read it all, you knew it from the very beginning. And this is David taking us down deep to say once upon a time in the infinite eternal past. And that's even, I don't even think it's possible for us to have finite amounts of intelligence to be able to contemplate what is of infinite consequence. But once upon a time in the eternal past, your life was a book, my life was a book that God had already read. It was a movie that God had already watched. It was a soundtrack that God had already listened to. And before you were ever born, God knew everything about you before even the foundation of the world. Before there was an earth, before there was a cosmos, once upon an eternal past when it was just God in his eternal, infinite existence, even then, God knew every last detail of your life and mine. You say, why should this be freeing and why should this be encouraging? Because God has known you completely for all of eternity. There has never been a moment when God did not know you and did not know me completely. But at the same time, with equal weight and equal force, for all of eternity, the God who completely knew you was the God who also completely loved you. He is the only person who knows everything about you. He is the only person who knows everything about you, who knows everything about me. And he is the only person that even though he knows everything about me and everything about you, he still loves us completely. And this is why this is a big deal. And, and this is why for like more than a few weeks, I've been so excited about this particular day because we are tempted to live our lives casting God in our own image rather than realizing that we have been created in God's image. And when we are guilty of seeing God in our image, here's how we process our lives. We think that God's up there in heaven receiving and interpreting information in real time from your life and my life and what's happening here in this world. We think that God's up there receiving and interpreting information in real time. We like to think of it in terms that God is learning things about us that God is discovering things about us, that God is seeing new things about us, that as we live our lives and we make a dumb decision, we like to think of it in terms sometimes that God's up there like, what? What? I totally didn't see this coming. Hey, Gabe, come here, come here. Gabriel, come here, Gabriel. It's like somebody thought it was a stagehand back. Hey, who's Gabe? What's happening? It's like, we're shocked. I'm so surprised. I can't believe this. I, I never saw this plot twist. I never thought that they would do this. I never thought that they were capable of this. He's not up there learning things about you. He's not up there learning things about me and he's not writing it down and putting it in a file somewhere. God's not surprised. God's not shocked. He's not caught off guard because he's already read the book of your life. He's already watched the movie of your life before the foundation of the world. But when we think that God's discovering something new, seeing something new, hearing something new, that's what opens the door to guilt and to shame and condemnation. That's what makes us feel uncertain about our relationship with our heavenly father because we think that God's obtained some new information about us God was good with us on Thursday, but then, oh my gosh, on Friday, I, I'm not sure anymore. 
I'm not sure how God feels about me after Friday, as though that God just learned about Friday on Friday. No, God knew it all from the beginning. And this is David's point. God knows me and God loves me. God knows me and God loves me. I I want you to hear yourself say that out loud. You need to hear yourself say that out loud. You ready? Let's go. God knows me and God loves me. One more time. God knows me. The one who knows me best is the one who loves me most. He's always known me and he's always loved me. He's always known you and he's always loved you. You may be shocked at what you did. You may be disappointed in you. You may be angry at you. You may not like what you did and you may find it and I may find it challenging sometimes to love myself and to forgive myself and to extend to myself grace and mercy and patience. But don't confuse how you feel about you or how someone else may feel about you. Don't confuse that with how God feels about you. What God knows about me it never changes how God feels about me. And what God knows about you, it's never changed how God feels about you. God's knowledge about me and about you and about us, it doesn't inhibit his love for me or for you. When I fail within the context of time and space, he's not surprised. This isn't new information that changes anything about how he feels about me or how he treats me because he's known about it from before the foundation of the world. And David says, how precious are your thoughts about me? Oh God, they cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you're still with me. And and again, to say it a different way, David says, God knows the worst about me and still thinks the best of me. God knows the worst about me and still thinks the best of me. See, that's not very possible for you. It's very difficult for me. It's difficult for us with other people. But this is the gospel. In the New Testament, after Jesus' death, his burial and resurrection, the apostle Paul, perhaps with what David wrote in Psalm 139 in mind, he, he pins these words to a group of Christians. He says, even before he made the world, I don't know why it gets to me every single time. Even before he made the world, before he spoke it into existence, God loved us. And even before he made the world, he chose us. He chose you, he chose me in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance From the very foundation of the world, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family, knowing everything about you, knowing everything about me, every word, every thought, every sin, every struggle, every detail, every moment. He decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. He didn't do it with his teeth gritted together. It wasn't an obligation. His love for you, him choosing you was a pleasure because God is so rich in mercy and he has loved us so much that even though he knew what he knew and even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead because it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. He knew every last detail. And he looked at his son in eternity past and he said, son, they're worth it. He's worth it. She's worth it. We know what we know. 
but it doesn't change the love that we have. And so he sent Christ into the world to die for sinners. Not the best version of ourselves, but the very worst version of ourselves Christ died for. Every relationship we have, it requires to some degree that we hide a part of ourselves. We don't tell anyone everything we think. Sometimes we save certain things, certain words, certain feelings, certain parts of our story. We reserve for our own self only because we're afraid that if you truly knew me, you may not love me. If you knew all the stuff in here, and if you knew all the stuff in here, you may not, you may not accept me. It may change the way you feel about me. It may change the way you treat me. And just like you, I'm not willing to take that risk. But there's one relationship where we have complete confidence because there's only one who knows it all about you and about me. And he is also the one who loves me and chose me and brought me into his family because the extent of God's infinite knowledge of me, it never changes the extent of God's infinite love for me. He knows me and he still loves me. He knows you and he still loves you. And he knew it from the very beginning. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, take the good news that you can't learn. You can't learn anything because you know everything. And God, on a personal level, I find joy and peace and hope and confidence in the fact that there was nothing hidden from you, that you have chosen to love me with full understanding of every day of my life, every moment of my life, every word that comes from my mouth and every thought you know it all. You know me best and you love me the most. Help us to receive this today so that we can be set free from guilt and shame and condemnation and unhealthy beliefs and ideas about who you are and what you're like. Speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.